Hi everyone, just a note before we start. This episode includes discussion around some sensitive material and topics such as physical and mental abuse and sexual assault. Labour exploitation is probably the most predominant type of exploitation and you know, there's lots of different types of labour exploitation, isn't there? There's, there's illegal people coming into the country and illegally working. But in, in this particular case, it was all, on the face of it, legitimate. So we were in the EU at the time. Um, Polish people were allowed to come into the country to work. So, with, so the, 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 the OCG were bringing um, Polish people lawfully into the country, opening bank accounts, getting national insurance numbers for them, and um, getting them employment either through recruitment agencies or directly to companies. So it was all legitimate on the face of it. The, the only difference being the OCG had control over the bank accounts. And when the, the victims complained, they then received the threats. Welcome back to Floodlight, a podcast from us here at the Anti-Slavery Collective that looks to raise awareness of modern slavery by sharing stories and speaking to interesting people that are looking to combat it in their own way. I'm Eugenie. And I'm Jules. And for the last nine years, we've been passionate about fighting against slavery in all its forms, wherever it is found throughout the world. Slavery is still very much a modern problem. There are currently more than 40 million people in slavery across the world today. That's more than at any other time in human history. And those most likely to be affected are women and children. This week, we sat down with Nick Dale. Nick is a chief superintendent at West Midlands Police and was involved in the largest single case of modern slavery ever tried here in the UK. That's because he was a senior investigating officer for Operation Fort, which Caroline Hockey spoke to us about in episode one. That means that Nick probably has more first-hand experience of combating modern slavery than any other person in the UK. The organised criminal gangs he helped expose were believed to have exploited nearly 400 victims in Birmingham between 2012 and 2017. He gave us a fascinating account of the case, how they came to expose the gang, and how the victims have been helped since. Listen closely because Nick gives some tips about how to spot signs of modern slavery in your own life. Let's listen to what Nick had to say. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Welcome to our podcast. This is so exciting to have a real-life policeman. A real-life policeman. <laughs> could, you, um, could you please tell us and our listeners uh, what your title is and um, what it means? Because that would be really fun, I think. For me, you're like line of duty in real life. <laughs> yeah, my name's Nick Dale. I'm a detective chief inspector in West Midlands Police. Um, I work currently in uh, force intelligence in serious organised crime and exploitation. Um, but throughout the course of this investigation, you know, I've been working in various different departments. Um, so what this means from a rank perspective, the different ranks in policing start at constable, go through sergeant, inspector, chief inspector, superintendent, chief superintendent, and then you're into act, you know, assistant chief constables and the sort of stratosphere of the ranks. Wow, so you're really important. Yeah. Well, I don't know about really important. I'm somewhere <laughs> in the middle there. All right, so I've been in the police 20 years now, unfortunately. I know I don't look old enough. No, I was, very young. I was actually, I was in the army. I was an army officer. Oh. Um, I was an officer in the parachute regiment. And in 2001, it's a, it's a sort of role where... Um, particularly at the time, sort of late 90s, early noughties, there was a lot of training happening, but not a lot of operational um, stuff going on. So, and I'd always, always as a, as a, 
you know, from a child wanting to either join the army or join the police. But I thought join the army first. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, not having lots of stuff going on? Well, (laughs) it it, it gets a bit frustrating, to be honest. And, 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 you know, since since I left the army, so obviously there's a lot, there's a lot been going on. There's a lot of tours of Iraq and Afghanistan and and that sort of thing. But but I I, I left for two, I, I joined the police really for two main reasons. First of all, you know, it, it sounds corny, but it but it is there, and you speak to any police officer. Behind their reason for joining the police will be simply that desire to help people. Um, but but secondly, that idea that you know, in the police, it's operational all the time. You know, yeah. everything you do is having an effect on people's lives. And and I know other other professions have this as well. So people in the medical profession, say, often people in the legal profession, people who who provide a real service to people sometimes it's a real privilege to be at that point in someone's life where they're where they're in a crisis and you're able to help um so yeah that for me was why i joined the police and that's what even you know even even at my rank like i said you know i could have a tactical difference on the ground as to how people are treated and how how we how we um give a service to the community um, so yeah, that's what I like about policing. Um, you said this investigations. Would you mind just giving us a little overview for our listeners? So yeah, a little overview. It's quite difficult to give a little overview. <laughs> a big overview. But, yeah. So Operation Fort started in 2015. At the time, I was a detective inspector working in Fort CID. Um, what? What's Fort CID? Fort CID. You see, <laughs> thank you for is, asking that. <laughs> so yeah, this is the, the criminal investigation department. So okay. this is this is the, the the detective branch, if you like, the people who in, investigate crime. And I was um, running a team that investigated all sorts of violent crime, from um, public order offences through assaults, all the way up to attempted murder. Um, and at the time, we'd just gone through a change, and we had this. You know, where do we put? modern slavery investigations so so my team investigated modern slavery as well this would have happened around 2014 i started running this team but it didn't really raise its head until sort of the beginning of 2015 when one of my sergeants came to me and said boss i don't know what i don't know what to do here i've got these i think there were about seven or eight crime reports for modern slavery within the case within the course of the next couple of weeks they they expanded to 23 um and so we needed to really sort of put a, a sort of investigation around this, put a team together to uh, to sort of get as much as we could from this investigation. Before then, though, had there been, I mean, what had there been people who had been in modern slavery or had come to your attention? Or it wasn't called that, was it? Yeah, it was, it's, it's, there was modern slavery that existed before the 2015 Act. And in fact, this investigation started before then. So there was legislation under the... Um, Crikey! I think it was the Coroners and Justice Act and some right. and some immigration legislation, which almost match it matched the current modern slavery legislation. So we had the legislation available. I'll be honest with you, you know, we didn't fully understand it. We didn't understand the um, the crime type. We didn't understand how the uh, exploitation happened. We, we we would have expected more sort of physical uh, coercion in terms of victims. So. You know, throughout this, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll admit I've been on the journey in terms of understanding that, understanding the crime type, and understanding, you know, what a victim goes through uh, as a victim of modern slavery. The Modern Slavery Act coming in in 2015 was really galvanised us and helped us do that. This investigation, personally for me, to be able to see, you know, the, the first of all the scale of it, the number of victims that were coming forward. So that 23, those 23 victims, kind of expanded over the course of the next couple of years, and, and, and we had. Um, 
nearly 100 victims coming forward to, to, to give us evidence. We were able to prove there are around about 400 victims of this particular organised crime group. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all, all of these things opened, uh, uh, you know, opened my eyes to it and sort of uh, opened the force's eyes as well. Well, can we go back? Let's scale back yeah, a sorry, bit because, yeah, yeah. no, no, I mean, 400 victims, this is the largest ever um, case of modern slavery in the UK uh, with 400 victims that you have been working on since 2015. But... If we just scale back a bit and just talk quickly about like how you even came into the police force and a bit of your history, because I think Operation Four is is you know unbelievable and and we can get to that. It's just kind of I want to know like we Jules and I are obsessed with line of duty and I, I want to know how you got into policing and and yeah your yeah. journey and, and line of duty is interesting actually because it, it it came up in the first trial because i was giving evidence and i accidentally referred to an ocg and obviously in line, line of duty they talk about the ocg all the time don't i i yeah. should have said the organized crime group but i said that the ocg and somebody stood up you know one of the defense barristers stood up and said you know what's an ocg and the judge said well everyone's seen line of duty <laughs> so um, it's real life so yeah it, it it's kind, kind of, of real life but but interest. This is an aside. I will get. I'll ask you a question. I promise you. Um, <laughs> the um, the portrayal of an OCG in Line of Duty is quite interesting because you've got people with automatic weapons and balaclavas shooting at each other essentially, and that and that does happen. But in this case, this organised crime group was far more subtle than that. They never wore a balaclava. They yeah. never carried guns. They used violence, um, but not a huge amount. It's not not as much as would be expected. Um, so it's understanding the nature of organised crime is is important in this in this field but anyway back to the original question no, why but it's, I joined the police it is actually a good point though because it's kind of the same in modern slavery as a whole people expect it maybe to be like they see visible, in the movies yeah. or visible or what it was and actually it's not yeah exactly visible. exactly it's a hidden crime within communities and um, and the, the the victims themselves often don't know they're victims of crime until the sort of slow realisation happens um, and they realise they've been duped and and, and that's how the offenders can often gain that control and control over a period of time um, because they've got that, they isolate the victims, they've got that psychological coercion, sometimes threats of violence, but, but we very rarely see them locked up and chained to radiators and that's that sort of thing that, that often I think the public expect, and I, I admit I would have expected, um, and the higher level of violence that I would have expected before I came to this investigation. Right. And how are you trained to investigate cases like this? So back in 2015, there wasn't a huge amount of training, if any. So it was, it was very much learning on the job, learning off other people. One thing that was really um, useful for me were, were people like the um, tactical advisors within the National Crime Agency um, and pe people who had experienced modern slavery before. So we, 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 we learn off our peers in this, in, in this respect. And also, I have to say, um, NGOs, people on the ground who are, who are dealing with the communities and the victims um, on a daily basis. Not only can they help us understand the culture that sits behind the exploitation, how victims are exploited, but they can help bridge that, that the, the gap in confidence because a lot of times the victims don't have any confidence that the police are going to take their complaint seriously, that there's protection available for them, that they can come forward and, and, and report this sort of crime. So for me, it was very much learning from the people around me. But now there are, you know, the, 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 there is a training package in place. So learning from investigations like Opfort, obviously not just Opfort, learning from those different types of investigation, learning about the legislation and the case law that has tested the legislation through their various different trials. So all new police officers get that learning. It's it's in the detective 
um, academy training. So, you know, there, there is quite a lot more training than there was available for me. So that would be also working, like, with police in London or police in different areas yeah. across the country that you build a case with them yeah, and yeah, exactly. lawyers to yeah. then... Yeah, so right. and it's not just about building a case, you know, this is a sort of crime type where we're not we're not just going to um, sort of arrest our way out of it because of the huge amount of complexities around it, but but also it's it's working with people who can who can support building the intelligence picture, who can stop offenders coming into the country or or deport them from the country, or um, you know help help protect and safeguard victims. It's the whole what we call the four P approach: the, the you know prepare, protect, prevent, as, as, as well as pursue. Oh, wow. So when you you say you don't make lots of arrests, that's so that you're not kind of alarming people so that you can carry on with your investigation around a specific gang um not well sometimes it can be that because sometimes um you know we will need to build a case um often we want to make arrests to um to be able to get some control over our offenders and and protect victims that way um but 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 mainly it what i mean is you can't arrest your way out of the problem which is you know, um, people exploiting other people to make money. Um, because if you arrest that person, someone else will just move into that place and carry on doing it. So, and you have to prove yeah, that yeah. They, they've so, actually exploited them, is that right? Yeah, so for, first of all, it's very complicated. You can't, um, it, it's very difficult to identify all of your victims, identify all your offenders, you know, get all of it, get get the um, cooperation of all your victims in order, in order to prove it. That's that's one thing. The other thing is absolutely like you say, you um, if 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 you just arrest one person, somebody else will take their place. Um, so our, um, our our QC Caroline Hockey put it really well when she said, "You've got to cut the head of the snake. If you don't cut the head off the snake, yeah. it will continue." And and what we found when we were investigating this particular OCG is. It evolved in, in 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 the way it committed its crime, in the way it, um, say for example, that the, the the offenders would take uh, cash out of the uh, victims' bank accounts on a Friday. Once we identified who was taking the cash out and we arrested them, that somebody else would go and take the cash out. They'll, they'll evolve their way of doing their business until you completely shut them down. If that makes sense. Yeah. So. So, so how does it work with you and Caroline then? So Caroline is the QC on the case and you are gathering evidence and do you work in tandem? So you'll say, right, this is the evidence I've got and she'll say, well, I actually need a bit more if this is going to stand up in court and you go away and fill in the gaps. Is it, how, at what point does she come into the process? Yeah, so um, I, I, just, I just do what Caroline says. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? Caroline. <laughs> no, no it's, it's, it's quite interesting actually because... Um, not, like I said before, when we first came across this case, we didn't fully understand it as a crime type. Um, we were having conversations with the CPS where... CPS? CPS, <laughs> yeah. So we were, having, we were having conversations with the Crown Prosecution Service there we go. before Caroline was instructed, um, where we were um, unsure between us about what, what exact points we needed to prove. And um, when Caroline was instructed... She'll, she'll make, uh, she, she laughs about this to this day. When Caroline was instructed, I was there thinking, I've got this. this she, she, she actually uh, agreed to come up and meet the team in Birmingham. And I was there thinking, we've got this hotshot barrister from London coming up. I've got to present my case. I've got to sort of show her everything I've got. And at, 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 
the, the first all we had was the um, accounts of the victims. So we had some victim statements, 23 victim statements, which can always be uh, attacked. But in the meantime, we'd gathered a load of phone evidence, uh, bank evidence and that sort of thing. And I felt like, here, here we are, we've got a really strong case. So I, so I put together a PowerPoint presentation for Caroline to say, you may not think it's very strong based on what the victims are telling us, but look at all this other stuff I've got. Caroline will, will um, sort of came into the office like a whirling dervish and I never actually got to show and to this day I've never shown the PowerPoint oh, presentation no. I know it's not too late and, and Caroline will say it's 70 pages it's not quite but why didn't you get to see it because what she said is she, she came in and said just based on the victims accounts that she'd read she came in and said right brilliant we've got a, we've got a uh, we've got a great case here. This is what we're going to do. Da, 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 you know, and and was like, like, like oh, you Caroline is full of energy. We, I, I didn't need it to convince her we oh, had a case. Oh, and then I, I said, look, stop, Caroline. Can, can you just have a look at all this other evidence we've got? Because overlaying the victim evidence, we've got all this, all this phone work, all this bank evidence, and, and this was quite early on in the investigation. So, like, so this is Operation Fort that you yes. started, and this is 2015. We're talking about, yes, uh, yeah, the beginning. And did Caroline come up in 2015? Yeah. So Operation Fort started in February 2000. 2015. I think she came up to see us in June or July that year. And, and this from, is the same case that was covered by the BBC yes. Panorama TV yes, show. Yes, which is called The Hunt for... The Hunt for Britain's Slaves Gang. The Hunt Gang. for Britain's Slaves Gang. Yes. BBC Panorama. Yeah. Award winning, actually. They got an award for that from the uh, the Modern Slavery Foundation. The UK <laughs> for the award. Go. And um, Duncan, who I think directed it... Yes. Shouted out for you, to you and Caroline on the oh, on the see. on the video yesterday, and I Did was literally. Say, I know that. I was like waving my <laughs> waving my hands furiously. I'm seeing Nick How did you first stumble upon Operation Fort? Like, what was the first piece of evidence that blew it up? So yeah, so the um, evidence came to us in the form of some uh, witness statements. These were individuals who were identified through the, the uh, charity Hope for Justice had an outreach worker in um, in West Bromwich, which is sort of um, to the uh, west of Birmingham, uh, quite a deprived area, quite an area with a, a large Polish community. Um, and they had a Polish outreach worker called Peter or Piotr. Um, and he was able to um, identify and speak to victims of one slavery. Obviously, you know, Hope for Justice um, um, had him um, as a sort of support and outreach worker to them. And... Um, what he was able to do was give them the confidence to come forward to the police. Um, and then we were able to identify the common themes between these um, victim accounts, realise we had one one organised crime group which was, um, you know, which was orchestrating the exploitation of these individuals, um, looked at what their uh, MO was, their modus operandi, you know, how they were recruiting people from the same parts of, um, the, of, of Poland, bringing them over to um, Birmingham um, into particular houses, um, opening bank accounts for them, putting them to work, um, controlling those bank accounts so that they would be able to sort of um, farm the money off on a, on a, on a, on a payday um, and they would give the victims um, the, the amount of money that, that they felt the victims deserved every week, which would, would range from £20 a week for a, for a, for a full uh, week's work, sometimes including overtime, range from £20 a week to sort of £120 a week. Um, and when those victims started complaining about the situation they were in, they would get threats, they would get beaten up uh, and that sort of thing. So 
yeah, so so we were able to pull those accounts together and identify uh, that we had um, a, a an OCG and we identify um, some members of the, that OCG, some individuals, and also some some addresses. We had one. Uh, we had some CCTV as well. So the um, members of the OCG taking out that the um, victims' uh, wages on the Friday from the from the ATMs. We were able to get some of that on CCTV. And the other aspect of this, there's, there's a, there was a distinctive patchwork coat involved in that. So there was a woman taking out the, um, the money in a distinctive patchwork coat. Mm. And, and I remember we had a um, we had a, what, a sort of day of action where we had a whole um, convoy of, 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 of police cars going from one address to another, trying to identify and safeguard victims, trying to find um, evidence of, of, of offending. And I think we went to about eight addresses on that occasion. Um, which is the first re really big day of action for Opfort, and we didn't really come across anything significant until we got to the last house, and we knocked on the door, and the woman opened it, and um, Mike Wright, one of the detectives on the team, recognised her as the woman who'd been, who, who'd been, yeah, t taking money out of the ATM, and on the back of the door was a patchwork coat. No way. In the patchwork coat was a was a uh, receipt from an ATM and so we arrested her we didn't even know who she was at, at, at that time she ha. was she was Justina Parchevska could he could he, sorry just be really moving about it yeah did he have to have a warrant <laughs> well no <laughs> as soon as he saw her and recognized her from the CCTV he had the power to arrest her he had reasonable grounds to suspect that she was involved in Human trafficking offences. And then look at her. So he arrested her. That gave her the power of that gave him the power of the power to search under Section 18 of Pace. Oh. And you'll see all this in line of duty. You'll you'll see yeah. them actually yeah. saying what what legislation they're they're, they're um, searching under. So not only did we get that patchwork coat back, and and that appeared in the trial later. Quite interestingly, we got that patchwork coat back. But when we like that that arrest then gave us the power to search the whole address. So we were able, we we found. A number of bank cards in some of our victims' names, some bank cards in other people's names. Wow. Those bank cards had written on the back of them uh, the, the, the PIN numbers. So what the, what the, what the um, traffickers would do is when they opened the... Uh, when they went into the bank to help, to supposedly help the victims open a bank account, to interpret for the victims, because the victims were Polish, they didn't speak English, they would that they would get the victims to get the um, or they would get the bank to send the bank details to an address that was controlled by them they would then get the card and obviously write the pin number on the back of the card so they knew you know that they knew the pin number when they went to get the, the um, money out when they got the money out on a Friday they'd have a whole pile of cards in their hands and they'd just go to an ATM and put card after card after card and take a week's wages out to wow. 250 280 pounds for a week's wages for each card. So obviously they had to have the PIN number written on the back so they knew what yeah. the PIN number was. So we, we found all these cards with the PIN numbers written on the back. We found £15,000 cash and you know phones with evidence on with our victims' um, ID cards photographed on them and that sort of thing. So does that mean that the people employing the victims were paying them correctly into their bank accounts? It was just the traffickers that were then taking the cards to the ATM and withdrawing all the cash? Yeah, exactly. So, so this is... This is, I think, the, 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 the interesting thing about this type of exploitation and, and labour exploitation is probably the most predominant type of exploitation. And, you know, there's lots of different types of labour exploitation, isn't there? There's, there's illegal people coming into the country and illegally working. There's, there's people who are brought into the country illegally and, say, exploited to grow cannabis and that sort of thing. But in, in this particular case, it was all, on the face of it, legitimate. So 
we were in the EU at the time. Um, Polish people were allowed to come into the country to work. So, with, so the, 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 the OCG were bringing um, Polish people lawfully into the country, opening bank accounts, getting national insurance numbers for them, and um, getting them employment either through recruitment agencies or directly to companies. So it was all legitimate on the face of it. The, the only difference being the OCG had control over the bank accounts and when the, the victims complained, they then received the threats. I have another question. So would these um, victims be working for companies like... Like, were these companies made, when they were made aware of it that they were victims of trafficking? Were they not sort of shocked or would they be part of it? Well, they they, they were. Yeah. I need to kind of steer clear of oh, right. were companies part of it. I can talk a little bit about that, um, if, if I may. Um, so, yes... Most companies would be shocked when they found out that that um, people working for them were victims of right. modern slavery. Um, you know, a lot of these companies, a lot of recruitment agencies, worked with us to, um, to, to to sort of identify more victims, prevent more victims um, being exploited through their through the supply chain of workers, if you like. Um, and what kind of work was it? Hard labour, cleaning services. Yeah, it was so. It was it was a lot of sort of, um, if you like, unskilled labour. Um, so there were people. Uh, they had victims um, at recycling plants, sorting through recycling um, at a um, at a distribution company or a couple of distribution companies, um, doing things like building sheds and fences, sort of quite hard manual labour out, out th- throughout the winter, um, um, picking fruit and vegetables, that sort so of thing. So for our listeners, given the list that you've just run through, what can we and they do to help or how, what can we keep an eye out for? Yeah, so it's a, it, it is a really difficult question, that, because the, because this type of exploitation is um, c- c- can be quite subtle. Um, the victims themselves may not know that they're victims of crime at the time we come across them. So, for example, when they're opening their bank accounts, that they, they, they won't necessarily know they're a victim. So it's really difficult for, to, 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 to come in from the outside and sort of intervene in that situation. Um, but I think, I think the first thing to do is, is, is to care. So um, whether or not it's somebody working in a, in a nail bar or somebody coming to your company to, to work through, through casual labour... Um, somebody providing sexual services, for example, or or, de- or dealing drugs, some of the the, the, the less legal uh, industries. It's about caring. You know, why is that person in that situation? What situation are they in? And um, and it's really important to understand that it's not just people who are going to be locked up. Um, it, it's also not people who are necessarily going to be grateful for your help if if, if it's offered there and then you know again through the course of the investigation we said we, we often don't rescue people on the first day we talk to them about um exploitation and they come to a, a sort of realization um so it's about understanding the the crime type it's about caring about that person and it's about having that conversation with them if if there is obvious exploitation there and it's safe to do so then people should call the police and report it as a crime um, are there people like you in every police force across the UK? There are people like me in every police force across the UK. There's a non-slavery organised immigration crime unit, which is a national unit that coordinates efforts to tackle this this crime type. There are there are people coordinating efforts to tackle this crime type. There are investigators who are you know really keen to 
put these OCGs behind bars. And can you tell our listeners what happened in the end? Like, I know it's a good ending and we like hearing yeah, that. Yeah, what was the conclusion so, so, of Operation Fort? So, so, so um, the, the, we haven't quite reached the end. Oh. Um, there may well be a fourth trial, but so far we've had three trials over the course of the past couple of years. We've convicted 12 people from offences, um, mainly you know, 11 of them for offences relating to modern slavery, um, you know, to trafficking people into and within the UK, as well as um, requiring people to perform forced or compulsory labour um, for money laundering offences as well. Um, in total, those people have, have, have got um, over 70 years in custody. Wow. And they're all in the UK? Um, some of them have returned to Poland to serve their sentences in in Poland. Um, That's great. They're so you're all working, Polish nationals. So you're working with the Polish. Yeah, I've been working with the Polish authorities, you know, to serve the sentence over there, but also to help keep track of victims and, and that sort of thing in Poland. And the victims or survivors of this terrible thing, what were? I mean, do you, are you in contact with them now, or have they gone home? Are they safe? Yeah, we're still in contact with. Um, at, at least some of the victims. Uh, one or two of them have sadly died through the course of the investigation. Um, some are still in the UK. Some are still receiving support in the UK. Some are, you know, living full and active lives in the UK. Some have gone back to Poland, um, and we're maintaining contact as, as, as best we can, anticipating a fourth trial. Obviously, the courage to come forward, the fact mm. that you know, six years after, after, in some cases, that they were exploited, you know, have you know actually being willing to stay in contact and come and give evidence I think is testament to not only the courage of the victims but also the effect that this sort of crime has had on those victims and it has been really traumatic and that's the thing that I that, that I didn't expect to find when you've got you know some you know they're, they're adults with capacity mainly males you know one of them was a former soldier in the French Foreign Legion I wouldn't have expected this sort of exploitation to have such a profound effect on the victims but it really did and the, and the, and the judge summed it up after the last trial saying he's seen you know grown men break down in, yeah. in, in, you know g giving evidence nick thank you so much for joining us today it's fascinating to talk to you especially around operation fort and given yeah. that we have another um, podcast episode with caroline your qc so it's great to hear kind of both sides of that story um thank you to our listeners and um we'll look, we look forward to see what the future holds that's my pleasure thank you very much for having me Thank you for listening to today's episode of Floodlight and a very big thank you to Nick for joining us. Next week, tune in as we chat with Ian Obina, the investigative journalist and author who wrote The Outlaw Ocean. It's a book about slavery out at sea and is one of the most significant books we've read on our activism journey. You can also be an activist and join us in the fight against modern slavery by visiting our website, theantislaverycollective.org. And if you want to learn more about what we've discussed on today's episode, head to the show notes and follow the links. Our mission is to raise awareness about modern slavery. Please help us by sharing and posting about this podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to Floodlight wherever you're listening and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to know about your own activism and who you'd like us to speak to next time. So see you next week. Floodlight is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 